Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 82, our eighth Q&A. I'm your layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you doing this year? Very good. Happy New Year. Yeah, again. 2016 again. Yeah. Are you still yeah. following through your resolutions? No smoking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try to be interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to do do all those things. Yeah, well, good, good. Well, this is our eighth Q&A, so we probably got about a bunch of questions from over six people. So you just want to jump right into it, and then after... We've got a bunch of updates and news we probably need to cover that's happened over the holiday break. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds good to me. Let's okay. Just jump in. Okay, it sounds good. All righty. So the first one is from Mark, and his question is, the scene with Jacob in Genesis 32, 22 through 32, was one of those that stood out to me as odd when I first read it. Now he wants to know, and he's got about five questions here, so I'm just going to kind of read them all and then let you attack them. Mm-hmm. He wants to know, in this situation of Jacob wrestling with God, a unique biblical story, or is it based on something else for the sake of theological messaging? If it is unique, do you believe it happened? As in, did God take human form and allow Jacob to physically wrestle? So if it is based on some other story or event, what is the writer taking from and what is the message? What is the significance of the anatomical location of injury to the hip? Is the story event a kind of telling of man's free will in that God allowed man to wrestle with him or a foreshadowing of what is to come in Israel's future in the Bible? Okay, yeah, Genesis 32, again, is this uh, incident where Jacob wrestles with, you know, the the man who, when we go over to Hosea 12, we find out, and, and even in the Genesis 32 passage, we find out this just wasn't an ordinary man. Uh, Hosea, of course, uses the term Elohim there, and, you know, when the, the name of the place, you know, happens in the Genesis 32 passage, when it's named Peniel, you know, I've seen God face to face, then, you know, we get an indication this isn't just a normal guy. So, Again, with 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 that as a backdrop, I'm not really sure what the, the questioner means by "is the story based on something else." Does I don't know if that means another text, some external text from some other civilization. So I'm I'm not really sure there. Despite that uncertainty, I would say I don't think that this this story itself is based on anything. I I, I don't know of any evidence that would suggest it's taken out of you know some other literary text or it's borrowed you know in in some sense you know for a polemic purpose you know like like you see in other places. So I don't think it's based on anything. I think it's just part of a series of theophanies and angelic appearances as men uh, in the book of Genesis. So. 
again, in, in that sense, it's normative uh, for those who've read Unseen Realm would know that, yeah, I, you know, I, I accept what the biblical text says in these instances that God not only can, but did appear in human form. Uh, an appearance of God in, in human form uh, isn't unique. It actually happens in a number of places. Again, for those who have not read the Unseen Realm, you'll get a bunch of those. Appearance of the angel of the Lord or just other angels in human form. Again, nothing unique. There are plenty of examples. Now, what's unique here, uh, one aspect of it is, is the wrestling, okay, is the, is the struggle. Granted, Genesis 19, you have angels physically handle Lot. Of course, Genesis 18, they have a meal. So they do physical things, uh, but, you know, we don't have any sort of fight or struggle uh, in another episode. So that part of it makes it unique. And again, that, that's, that's part of the, uh, part of the story is that, you know, you, you have this, this episode that is a, a way to illustrate or, or maybe cast in a different light because Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel, but sort of the things that, you know, he's encountered, uh, you know, in life, the difficulties, you know, abstractly that he's encountered in life, his struggles, so to speak. And so, you know, and really his, his strivings with God, because, you know, the whole episode of stealing the birthright and, you know, some of the other stuff he's done, this sort of gives visual or in, in this case, corporeal form. I mean, for the sake of Jacob, a, a, a sort of visceral time and place reminder of really what he's been doing spiritually, you know, struggling with God and against God. And so it becomes kind of a, a living object lesson for him. And, you know, we, we can pick up on that because we can go back and, and read the account. Now, what about the, uh, yeah, the injury to the hip? And the, the hip is specifically mentioned in verse 32, and that's important. Now, let, me, let me just read it. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, the reason I, I say that's important, it will become evident in, in a moment here, but just generally, what we have here is, is this is a, a comment by the writer to sort of cast an explanation for why later Israelites, the, the phrase unto this day, therefore to this day, the people of Israel don't eat this or that. So later Israelites, again, had this, had a custom of not eating, again, the, this part of the thigh that is on the hip socket. That, that doesn't come from Leviticus. Okay, that's, again, it was something customary. And so the writer living post Jacob is explaining this custom in light of this event. So it, it provides an explanation for, for the custom. That's an editorial note added to the Torah, you know, either by when it was, this portion was originally composed or something later, but it gives a justification or an explanation for the custom. Now, I want to read uh, just a statement here from one commentator. Uh, you know, a lot of the explanations get kind of long and windy, but this one brings up something that I think is worth uh, addressing in light of some of the stuff we've talked about in Leviticus. Uh, Westermann says, The reason given for the prohibition, which does not occur elsewhere in the Old Testament, is difficult. The prohibition is concerned with a part of an animal's body, whereas the event that gave rise to it was concerned with a person, Jacob. The most likely explanation, according to, to Westermann, is that this part of the body was subject to taboo because it was regarded as belonging to the reproductive area. The, the loins, okay, because it, it, it's the thigh that joins the hip. I don't really buy that. Uh, and, and I mention it because 
other listeners might come across that. And we've had sort of these abstract laws and rules and customs in Leviticus that, you know, as we're, we're still going through the book uh, of Leviticus, but we, we've run into these things before. And again, they, they've made sense in their own context, but, you know, there, there are some problems here. On the one hand, it's true that various references in the Old Testament to the quote thigh in English translations are actually euphemisms for the genitals. Okay, that that is true. Uh, for instance, let me just give you an example. You know, we the Eliezer, the servant, you know, with Abraham, the, the, this whole thing about, you know, put your hand under my thigh and vow to me that you're going to find a wife for my son so that my lineage can live on and I can produce an heir and all this, you know, kind of stuff. Again, without getting into the details, this was a familiar expression because there's nothing sexual going on between Eliezer and Abraham, but the idea of of putting the hand under the thigh, really putting it under the, the genital area, specifically, this vow was taken to ensure the survival of the lineage. Okay, Abraham was looking for a blood, you know, or you know, to continue the bloodline, you know, through Isaac. Isaac needed a wife. So there are certain contexts, and again, this is a, a an ancient Near Eastern, if you want to call it Middle Eastern, custom of antiquity as to how you would take a vow, because it, it sort of linked your success in the vow, not only in this context with someone else's line, but again, abstractly, you were binding yourself to an agreement and the and and the the well-being of your own family, either in terms of retaliation or in terms of success or failure, you know, depends on on your ability to carry this sort of thing out. So that does happen. It's true. But I don't really think that this kind of works in the Jacob passage. It seems better to say that the struggle left Jacob uh, with a permanent injury to perpetually remind him of the event. And and the event is the focus of the event is his name change. So again, he has this this physical infirmity now, and every time his attention is drawn to that, well, his attention will be drawn to this struggle and the fact that you're no longer Jacob, you're Israel. You know, again, just the whole episode and and what what happened to him physically and spiritually through the through that, and then later generations by adopting this custom would also be reminded of the event. So so the, the, the food taboo here sort of commemorates the event as well. As far as foretelling, you know, something about man's free will or what's going to happen to Israel in the future, I, again, I'm not sure which future we're talking about. Is this the bonding, bondage in Egypt? I would say no, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Blessing, uh, maybe, but again, I, I'm dubious of that. Exile, again, I, I don't really see this foreshadowing specific uh, future events, you know, and I, re- I realize why the question is being asked. You could say, well, this conceivably conveys the idea that as Yahweh's people, Israel, persecution is going to come, you know, physical harm is going to come. But I would say that's kind of a bit odd because this was an angel, and I would argue likely the angel of, of Yahweh, who inflicted this. And it wasn't a punishment. Again, it, it was part of it was leaving him with a physical reminder. And, and you know, of, of all the biblical figures that might need reminding, of a relationship they have with with God and and their responsibilities, it might be this guy Jacob because he's continually just flip flopping all over the place, you know, with his loyalties, his own his own ethics, that kind of thing. So I think it just makes be- better sense to go with with something like that rather than try to abstract it too far out. All right, Mark has a tray of Enoch questions, which means okay. three. Mm-hmm. First one is: Was 
the Enoch of Genesis 5, 21 through 24, a character based on someone or something and used by the writer of Genesis 5, 21 through 24 for some purpose he wants the reader of the time to understand? Or did this Enoch first show up in this biblical writing, Genesis 5, 21 through 24? Second one is, if Enoch was unique to Genesis 5, 21 through 24, do you believe he really existed? And then the third one is, if Enoch was a character based on something else, who is it and what do you believe was the purpose slash message? Well, I mean, there are two Enochs in the early chapters of Genesis, and they're distinct people. Uh, there's the Enoch, who's the son of Cain and the father of Irad. That's Genesis 4, 17 and 18. And then there's this one that the, the question is really directed at. Uh, Enoch, the son of uh, Yared, Genesis five eighteen, who's the father of Methuselah. Verse 21, I don't think the one in, in chapter 5 plays off of the one in chapter 4. So if, if that's sort of lurking behind the question, that I don't think there's a relationship there. Now, there is, we've talked a little bit about the genealogies, and I've posted some things on the blog before. The, the genealogies of Genesis 5, in which this particular Enoch occurs, uh, the one who lived 365 years, the one who w- was taken by God, the one who walked with God, uh, that sort of thing. That figure is nestled in with, again, a bunch of these other pre-flood figures, and their genealogies are given. They have these long age spans and whatnot. There is a striking parallel to the genealogies of Genesis 5 and the long uh, ages from Sumeria. It's known as the Sumerian king list. So in that sense, the Enoch figure occupying position seventh, you know, the seventh from Adam, uh, is going to have a a number seven parallel in that list. And it's true in the Sumerian king list, there, there are some explicit connections by, by virtue of names, you know, with things, you know, people that show up in Genesis 5. So the Sumerian material would predate the Genesis material, you know, by a considerable amount. But I don't know that it, it even if there is some sort of, of you know, borrowings are not really the right term. What I think we have going on here, again, and you'd have to go up to the to the blog, those of you who are listening here. I, I recently, it's been in the last week, posted a an article on uh, by a guy named Lloyd Bailey that that proposes what I think, to this point anyway, that I've seen is the best attempt. Okay, it's not a conclusive kind of piece of work or article, but it's the best attempt I've seen to to make sense of the numbers of the long age spans in Genesis 5 through some mathematical cipher or mathematical pattern or device. Uh, I I really do think something is going on there uh, because you can do the same thing with the Sumerian king list. And there's this, again, very obvious relationship between these two things. So instead of just sort of borrowing, hey, you know, the the guy who, you know, we're we're writing Genesis 5 today, you know, whether you think that's Moses or somebody else. I mean, they're not sitting there thinking like, hey, I need a king list here and I need some genealogies. And, you know, I like math, you know, let's throw some of that in there. Oh, oh, here's one from Sumeria. I'll borrow this and now I can get to work. Again, that isn't the point. What I think's going on, again, Genesis 1 through 11, again, it's very Mesopotamian in its flavor in all sorts of ways. It, it, it is a rewriting or a recasting in, in, in a number of cases for polemic purposes, for theological purposes, a, a recasting, a retelling of pre-flood and post-flood events, specifically not from a pagan viewpoint, specifically not from a Mesopotamian religious theologizing of history. It's it's an Israelite, it's a Yahwistic theologizing of history, if you want to, again, for the sake of analogy, that's how I'll talk about it. So 
in that sense, yeah, there's some relationship to this, but in terms of somebody just sort of liking something they read and I'm going to borrow that and, and have one of my own, it, there, there's more to it than that because there is this, this pre-flood and po- post-flood history. And there are theological messages that can be conveyed uh, when you are, as a writer, when you are reacting to or responding to some other piece of literature, in this case, the Sumerian King List, that your readers, again, who are familiar with that, will know uh, better, maybe not completely, because in this case, again, the, the, the mathematical ciphering is, is still something of a mystery, even though if you read Bailey's article, there, there are a lot of patterns he detects that, that are, are, are pretty, pretty apparent, you know, once you, you follow what he's saying. But in, in some way, they would know that our, the, the, the writer of the Torah here is responding and replying to, in some cases, for theological reasons, to this other version of events. Okay, so in that sense, there is a relationship and there is a purpose. As far as did Enoch exist, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any reason to deny the existence of a person named Enoch before the flood event. Uh, again, I, that wouldn't really be any point of uniqueness in and of itself. There's nothing special. Uh, you know, if you have an Israelite writer who is writing about Enoch and he's number, number seven, number X in the list, any of these guys, there's nothing special about being the only you. So in, in, in this version, it, the name is Enoch. Now, you know, there, there could be, again, and people have argued for the, the idea that, well, both lists, even though they're composed at different times, both writers, even though they're, they, they, there's this gap, considerable gap of time between the two, both writers are thinking of the same individuals, the same King of Kish, for instance, the same this guy or that guy. Again, that, that's, that's quite possible, but it would still be that guy. It would still be a, a historical figure uh, in, in that instance. So what I'm trying to say here is the fact that there could be a mathematical cipher going on in Genesis 5 with these genealogies does not rule out that these were real kings or real people. And again, that, that God could interact with one of them, Enoch, and take him prematurely or give him some kind of special, you know, point of information. So I don't, I don't view those ideas as mutually exclusive. Now, as far as the question about the purpose of this and, and what, what, what the messaging might be. Now, since I've already said that I think the numbers in Genesis 5 are some sort of mathematical cipher, Again, there, there's there's some there there are specific conceptual and theological ideas that the writer is trying to convey through this technique. Since I embrace that idea, then yeah, I do think there is some sort of message. You know what it might be. People are still trying to figure out. Now, I'm here, here's a quote from uh, Bailey, the article I mentioned that I posted on my blog a short time ago. Bailey says this: It has often been pointed out that Enoch's lifespan of 365 years equals the number of days in the solar year. The connection between the two lies in the identity of his counterpart in the Sumerian king list. Uh, They're both in the seventh position. The name there is En-Mendur-Ana. Another text tells us that he, this, again, Sumerian figure, was summoned to heaven to be instructed in the lore of the Baru priesthood in the Sumerian religion. His cult city, according to the king list, is Sippar, well known as a seat of solar worship. So there's a connection there. Further connection between the two persons, Enoch and En-Mendur-Ana, may be found at Genesis 5.24, where the former is likewise taken to heaven. Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. So again, there's there's this relationship. And you say, well, why, why would the writer you know, of, of Genesis 5, what would be the point? Well, the point would be to deny that the Baru priesthood uh, of Sumeria 
you know, had special knowledge from their god or gods. Uh, it, it it would deny that uh, you know we should be worshiping the sun as the sort of progenitor uh, of of the way the heavens work, the way the year works, the calendar year. It, it, it's Yahweh of Israel. You go back and read Genesis one. It's it's you know God, the God of Israel, who created the sun, moon, stars for times and seasons and all this stuff. So there's there's some theological jousting going on in that. But it's actually bigger than that. Let me let me read you a, a selection. This is going to be a fairly lengthy selection from a book by Rachel Elior. It's E-L-I-O-R. And for those of you who, who have access to the Divine Council bibliography, this is not available in PDF. It's a book uh, that I couldn't find in PDF. But it's called The Three Temples. Okay, And it, it's basically uh, about astral religion in Israelite and Jewish Jewish religion, biblical and intertestamental second period Jewish uh, thinking, theology. So here's what she says. Just follow along. It's really kind of fascinating. She writes here, and this is the beginning of chapter four uh, in that book. She writes, time as conceived by the authors of Qumran literature, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls, in particular, the Temple Scroll a text known as MMT, the songs of the Sabbath sacrifice, the Damascus document, the blessings, the Psalm scroll, the calendars of the priestly discourses, and certain pseudepigraphic works, namely Jubilees and First and Second Enoch. A time was conceived by these people as something not arbitrary. It was not an arbitrary man-made structure or human order, dependent on unstable observations and determinations influenced by external conditions, adjustments, and errors. Time was of divine origin, a cosmic pattern obeying preordained, immutable laws, a cycle that had been recurring since sacred time was imprinted on nature during the seven days of creation and consecrated through the Sabbath day. Time was envisaged as the reflection of divine order in the universe, so designed as to perpetuate the cycle of life, blessing, and fertility, an order in which time and space are sanctified and interdependent from the earliest stages of creation, which took place in time divided into seven days and in the space formed during those seven days. The calendar, she continues, was not entrusted to man subject to adjustment and change, dependent upon human calculations or terrestrial considerations, for it represented the concept of a profound, comprehensive reality, a divine reality beyond the reach of the senses, but reflected in the cyclic numerical harmony revealed in the passage and changes of time. The calendar, based on a cycle of Sabbaths and seasons, embodied the eternity of the primeval order, based on the eternal cycle of the sun and the cyclic motion of the celestial bodies, which could be precisely predicted by numerical calculation. The calendar also related to the secrets of the cyclic nature of procreation, dependent again on counting and calculation. In other words, I'll, I'll just stop there. In other words, it refers broadly to nature. There's planting and harvest, ideas like that, but also you know, a certain reg- fairly regular set of time for uh, conception and, and get childbirth, those sorts of things in both the human and animal kingdom. So again, back to Elior, the calendar also related to the secrets of the cyclic nature of procreation, dependent on counting and calculation, purification and oath, ensuring the continuity of abundance, life, and fertility. Any infringement of this sacred cyclic pattern as expressed in the fixed numerical proportions 
of its component parts. Any attempt to ignore the divine pattern based on number and counting would generate impurity, bringing in its wake curse, death, and oblivion. The calendar of weeks and seasons of Sabbaths and covenants with its eternal sight, cyclic numerical pattern was taught to humans by divine angelic revelation. Now, if you've read the book of Enoch, that's very explicit. Uh, again, how teaching humans how the celestial heavens work and time and calendars and all, this is laid at the feet of the watchers. And so she's, she's referring you know, to this second temple you know, material that discusses that. Now, with respect to Enoch, she writes, the aim of Enoch literature, again, so that's, again, either Genesis 5, a few verses there, and, and then the broader books of Enoch and Jubilees, that sort of thing. The aim of Enoch literature, whose hero described as Enoch, have you chosen from among the sons of Adam and called a righteous man, repeatedly transcended the boundaries of time and place. It was designed to link cosmic with the ritual cyclicity to elucidate in detail the relationship between divine sevenfold structure of heavenly time as reflected by sign and oath like Sabbath, sun, the number seven, son of righteousness, these sorts of, of phrases. Enoch, son of Jared, was, as already noted, the seventh in the list of generations from Adam to Noah. This is stated in the biblical record of Adam's line and in the list of patriarchs of the world in a prayer found at Qumran. Again, this is the same sort of thing. The, the length of his mortal life 365 years, was exactly parallel to the number of days in the solar year, specified sometimes elsewhere as 364 and sometimes as 365 in the various calendar traditions. Now, what she's alluding to there is in some Dead Sea Scrolls, there is the number 365 for the calendar year and there's the number 364. And it's, it's, a, it's a long-standing academic debate as to why there's a difference in the numbers. Is there something being communicated there? And Elior has a footnote here. She says, the real solar year comprises 365 and a quarter days, that a full cycle of the sun's apparent motion you know, covers that, is well known. But the schematic year in the Qumran calendar consists of 364 days, which was 52 weeks, 52 sevens. Okay, the calculation comes out to 364. The number of days in the solar year was quite well known in antiquity. We learn from Egyptian literature and second Enoch, and the authors of Enoch and Jubilees were well aware of this discrepancy, 365 versus 364. We do not know how the priestly community actually coordinated the real and ritual numbers, but there's... Their cyclic calculations involve a calendar of 364 days and an additional day was included in the ritual count which was perhaps added once in four years to compensate for the difference. So I'm going to stop there, but you get the idea that Jewish writers and theologians looked at Genesis 5, and again, they produced a lot of this other material in, in the stream of Second Temple Jewish tradition, books like Enoch. And it, it, that material tells you that they're looking, again, back at Enoch, and they're thinking, there's something up here with Enoch, with this 365. So to those people... There was a purpose. There was a message. And to those people, as Elior commented, they linked that number because he was the seventh from Adam. Seven is important. Seven days, six days, and then the Sabbath. That's a week. Okay. They linked that number and his age number at 365. Enoch became for them a both a symbol and a cipher and a figure through whom the truth about time and calendar and the movements of the heavens, the celestial objects, all the stuff associated with time and keeping time, 
Enoch became the central figure in understanding that and tracking it and mapping it and and looking at it, trying to discern meaning out of it. Because the belief was, and I've I've commented on this before, the belief was that, you know, the God of Israel was the one that created this this system. And when we observe the system, when we tap into it, not only are we trying to mimic it with our rituals on earth to observe it and, and keep in sync with it through Sabbaths and festivals and seasons and all this stuff, not only are we trying to do that, but we believe, again, as, as Jews of the period did, we believe that God can be communicating certain things he's up to through celestial events. Okay, I've, I've talked about this before in relation to the birth of Jesus and all that sort of thing. So in, in that sense, again, this is what's going on you know, with Enoch. So for in Enoch's case, the mathematical cipher would, you know, would, was taken very clearly to relate to timekeeping and the way the heavens work. They're, they're doing what, what God made them to do. And when something unusual happens, or again, when, when we when we observe certain positions of certain things and we, you know, the ancients attach certain meaning to certain stars and certain positions and whatnot, that that telegraphs something to us. And of course, we're, you know, we're eons <laughs> removed, you know, from this way of thinking, but this is what was going through their head. So I just wanted to, to give an illustration of, of, you know, what some of that involves. And at, at the end of, of our episode today, when we talk about uh, what, some things Mike is working on. Uh, if I remember, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this back up because there is something I'm working on that relates to this specifically. But at this point, we'll just move on you know, to the next question. All right. The next three are from Lindsay. And the first one is, should we imagine the vision of Daniel 7 to be literal in the sense that the beast he sees are more than merely symbols representing kingdoms, but actual divine beings in heaven? receiving authority for their respective nations to rule the world for a time? I don't think so. I think they are just visions. They are artificial composite beasts that telegraph, again, symbolically the character of the nations in question. And I, I say that because the text, I think, makes it pretty clear that the beasts are nations. They are to be understood as nations. Okay, the second one is, Yahweh allocated the nations to sons of God, but what about new nations that rose up after the event? Would there have been a new son of God allocated to newer nations like Rome, for example? No, I, again, I would, I would say no to that because the issue is the geography. The geography stays the same even when the place names change and even when you know, we have a change in which human population gets control over the geography. The geography is, is the same. So I think the fact that it can change hands and it can get other names doesn't really change the sort of the outlook or the worldview of Deuteronomy 32. Okay, and the last one from Lindsay is, what do you think of the language of cosmic upheaval in the Olivet Discourse and how it appears to draw from Old Testament texts about the judgment of nations? Would the stars that fall from heaven and heavenly powers that are shaken refer rather to heavenly upheaval than something like meteors preceding the Lord's return? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I wouldn't read too much into making a distinction like that since the judgment of the nations is part of the eschaton. It is part of, 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 you know, the end of the world, if we want to use that language, uh, the day of the Lord, that kind of thing. So I don't think we can make a neat distinction between the, the two things as that, that's what I heard in the question. So I wouldn't do that. On the other hand, you know, you, you get this reference to the judgment of the heavenly powers. And, and I do think that there is something to 
you know, viewing the judgment of the heavenly powers and the nations they control being both, again, geographical regions and, and entities, if I can call it that, and again, these cosmic, celestial, spiritual powers. I think there is a connection there. You know, if you go to a passage like, like Isaiah 34, you actually have them mentioned in tandem. Uh, and again, this this passage draws on some things in Psalm 82, which is going to be familiar to a lot of a lot of my listeners. But in uh, Isaiah 34, I'll just start at the beginning. It says, "Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host." Now, again, you can you you can take that language, their host, but elsewhere and. I can't remember if I actually ever posted this paper, but not this last year, but the year before at uh, the academic conferences, there was a guy who, who wrote a paper as part of his dissertation on this passage, and it's links to Psalm, th- uh, to Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32. Uh, and he made the observation in that paper that their host in Hebrew, that phrase, when it, when it occurs elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, uh, frequently denotes divine beings. Again, like the heavenly host, you know, cosmic spiritual beings. So we don't, you know, you read that the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. You think that just refers to human armies? Well, probably not. It, 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 again, it's not that it can't, but it's not only that. It continues in verse two. It says, "He, the Lord, has devoted them to destruction," which is an interesting phrase. Again, it's harem. Again, which those who've read Unseen Realm know that that's sort of a pact, you know, verb there. Uh, he has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. Verse 3, the stench of their corpses shall rise. Now we're talking about something physical. The mountains shall flow with their blood. But now we go back to verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts, there's that phrase again, their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. So here you have an example where this celestial upheaval language, this cosmic upheaval language, is used both in probably astronomical terms, it includes judgment of the nations, and then lurking behind the background because the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uses astronomical language, just the phrase host of heaven, sun, moon, and stars. Host of heaven, if you Again, for, for those who are familiar with the divine council stuff, you trace that language through Deuteronomy, uh, it, it gets linked to the gods, to the gods of the nations. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32, it sort of culminates there. So all of these things, I would say, uh, are in play. Again, since the, the presumption was that celestial objects either you know, were heavenly powers or were connected to heavenly powers or you know, whatever the relationship was, and it's, it's going to be different in the mind of ancient people. I mean, nobody's thinking the same thing all the time, but you, know, I mean, you have all these ideas on the table. Uh, so we can't rule out any of these things. Only God would really know what measure of each possibility is in view. Uh, again, but for me, I think all of these things are in play. Okay, the next three are from Eric from Pelican Rapids, Minnesota. The first one is, I have no formal credentials to back it up, but I do a fair amount of Bible teaching, junior high to adult. I have to admit that your knowledge makes him feel (laughs) inadequate to the task, which is why he appreciates your blog post on June 25th, another sign of how anemic evangelical pulpits have become. (laughs) Can you expound on what you feel the role of the not as educated as you Bible teacher is and what he has to offer to those willing to listen? Yeah, this is a great question. I would say just do the job. I mean, the the job you do is important. And full disclosure here, I would once have been your student and lapped it up. Uh, So the amount of knowledge really has nothing to do with the need 
to do the job and the need for the job to get done. It, it has more to do with who your audience is and who your audience might be in the future. You know, in other words, what, what kind of ministry you envision yourself having. You know, if you are, I, I hate to say it this way because it's going to sound negative and, and I don't mean it to sound negative, or maybe not overly negative, but if you are a dedicated student of scripture, that puts you ahead of most people in your church. That again, that sounds bad, and it, but it's blunt and it's true. If you are a tenacious, dedicated student of Scripture, most people are not. Now, this is a conclusion that I personally had to be drawn to kicking and screaming. I did not want to believe it. But life has taught me and ministry has taught me that it's true. I remember when I became a Christian in high school and on into college, and I went to Bible college, you know, Christian school, and then I was dabbled in seminary. But I remember thinking that, and again, I didn't have any background. I was unchurched. You know, I, I didn't have any background, so take this for what it's worth. But I remember thinking and assuming that every Christian was as into the Bible as I was. And God basically had to, in, in some cases, disturbing ways, tell me, no, Mike, that is a misguided thought. <laughs> That is just not true. You can wish it was true, and you can try to live in this fairy tale world where it is true, but it is not true. So I would say again to Eric, look, if you're a dedicated student, you are already ahead of this curve that you might feel like you're behind. Don't worry about it. Just do the job. Again, most of the people in church are going to be fairly low information. And what I mean by that, again, that sounds pejorative, but, but what I mean by that is they don't assign a real urgency or a need to knowing lots of Bible stuff. It doesn't mean they're unfaithful. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, they have made their decision to follow follow Christ and so on, and they're content with that. They're dedicated to it. They're not going to change their mind. They're not, they're not going to waffle, but they're not going to be like you, and they're not going to be like me. So do the best you can, learn as much as you can, and you are you are already ahead of this curve. So don't let, you know, the, again, the low information low information folks sort of ignore what you say, don't let that bother you. The people who are there to learn will thank you for the effort. They're the ones you're really there for, you know, in in terms of of depth. But you can get everybody and it, and it and teaching somebody something about scripture, it, it's all important. So don't worry about your credentials. Don't worry about, I don't know as much as this guy or that guy. Who cares? Okay, you're in a place to do this job. It's an important job. So do it. Don't use it as an excuse to not do it or to do it less than you're capable of doing it. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that, Eric. I mean, if I was in junior high, speaking from a layman point of view, and somebody exposed me to this way of thought or ideas or the context scripturally, I would have loved it. I mean, yep, just the I fact that it. you're exposing it to people, and then it's up to them to go on and learn as much as they can or they want to. But just the mere fact that you're exposing people to these ideas and way of thought is more than enough, enough that hopefully will last them the rest of their life on Bible study. So yeah, that's... You, you, you will not capture everybody. You won't even capture the, the, the fascination of the majority. Look, you know, th this is me talking. This is Mike Heiser talking. This is, this is what I try to do on the web. I have had to, to come to grips with the fact that my, the sweet spot of my ministry, it, it's not the masses of people in church. Even though I wrote a book like Supernatural to try to to try to spark interest in this sort of thing with with just the average new believer, the average again low information believer. I mean, we try to do things like that and with my books the 60 second scholar all that. It's all aimed at at, at those people, but but the reality is the sweet spot of my ministry are the five or six people in every church 
who are just starved for content. Okay, those are the people that when I think of who, if I had to focus on just one audience as being primary for what I do or what I can do with the rest of my life, it's those five or six people. It's not the masses. Someone else can can reach them and I can give them material to help, again, spark an interest in scripture. And I realize this just sounds bad. Like we have to work hard at getting Christians interested in the Bible. But the, the fact of the matter is, yeah, you do. And again, for me, and I'm, and I'm saying for Eric, look, if, if you're worried about, oh, I just don't know, if I knew more, I'd get more people interested. Forget it. Okay. Do not let that define your ministry. Okay? Learn as much as you can, dispense as much as you can, realizing that it will be juicy. It will be, you know, chunky biblical theological goodness to only a few. But, but the ones who aren't in that group, you can still teach them something. And if you don't, who's gonna? So just do the job. And as with anything, the more you learn, the more questions you have. So it, it never ends. It just keeps going and going. Yeah, it never, it never ends for me. Yeah. For, you know, exhibit A of that, the Divine Council Bibliography. Okay, I mean, that that's the project's complete now. But there are lots of things that will get added to that. I, I, I could add to that. I, I don't have a photographic memory, so I don't remember all the contents of everything in there. And even if I did, a lot of that content would still generate questions that I'm still thinking about. And I am. So it never ends. But you, you, you are going to be the product of, of the, the result of cumulative effect, cumulative effort. And you have to take the long look and not halt yourself or impede your, your, yourself by thinking, oh, I could be more effective. God would be happier with me or I'd have a better ministry if I knew X, Y, Z like this other person does. That's just the wrong way to think about learning scripture and it's the wrong way to think about ministry. Okay, Eric's last question is you mentioned... 70 or 72, depending on how you count, for the number of nationalities divided at Babel. Has it occurred to you, or do you see any significance that 24, the number of human elders in Revelation, is exactly one-third of 72, and Satan fell and took one-third of heaven with them? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it has, um, but the gods over the nations are not said to be the result of a satanic fall, so I see no correlation between the two. In the same way, I wouldn't see correlations between all the things in the Bible associated with the number 70. There's a lot of them. doesn't mean they're all connected or, or correlatable. Uh, I also think the Masoretic text number 70 is preferable to the Septuagint 72. The, the, the difference between the two, by the way, for those who may not recall this from Unseen Realm or didn't read it, uh, the difference is how the Septuagint translator divides two names in the, the Table of Nations list instead of keeping them combined. So both numbers, 70 and 72, derive from the same source, Genesis 10. It's just the translator decided to do, to do, to do one thing with a name at the MT didn't do. So that, and that when you when you get 70 or 72 in New Testament manuscripts it's because one person is referencing the Hebrew text another one's using the Septuagint. That's but again it all goes back to Genesis 10. It all goes back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview which builds off of Genesis 10 and of course Genesis 11. So I mean there are other problems too. You know you have okay a third of the stars get cast to the earth. That, that's actually ambiguous. You know, are the are the third conquered by the dragon? Like, do they get killed, or are they conquered or beaten, or do they defect with the dragon? The, the text isn't really clear. You could read it either way. Uh, Revelation twelve. You know, that's the passage where you get this third you know, of the angels falling and, and that sort of thing. It comes from Revelation 12. That portrayal is also associated with the birth of the Messiah, if you go back and read Revelation 12. So it's not associated with the division of the nations. And again, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Another one is 24, of course, is 12 plus 12. 
And those 24 are faithful to God. And if, they, if that number does align to the, the number of the, the sons of Israel and then the 12 disciples, well, they're all loyal. None of them are defecting or, or evil. So I don't see how it would make sense to correlate them with the fallen 24 of Revelation 12, the fallen third. I don't see how that would make any sense. Now, again, there's something still lurking behind this. That's another possibility. Because Revelation 12, again, we have this astral theological stuff going on there, that we have this astral prophecy stuff associated with the birth of the Messiah that I've talked about before. That's Revelation 12. Well, here we have the the 24 elders, the elders here, is also in the book of Revelation, Revelation 4 and 5. So there may be some sort of astronomical thing about them as well. And I'll I'll give you an example here. Now, Bruce Malina, who is the guy who wrote... um, a book called On the Genre and Message of Revelation. Subtitle is Star Visions and Sky Journeys. Malina is a New Testament scholar. Uh, his focus is on uh, sociological stuff in the New Testament era. Uh, he believes that Revel- Revelation, the book, is a very good example of the literary genre known as astral prophecy. If you want to know why, you can get his book and read the intro at least. Um, I, I, I've, I've commented on Malina's book before. I think he he observes some things that I think are really important and that New Testament scholars need to pay attention to. I think he goes a little overboard. Uh, he minimizes the Revelation's use of the Old Testament, for example, which is really cr- crucial. Uh, it, it's not just about astrological or astrotheological stuff in the Greco-Roman world, but he, he tends to sort of get tunnel vision. So that Again, I, I've criticized him for that before, but but again, I, I recommend the book because he'll he'll introduce you to things that you'll never find anywhere else. But he says this on pages 93 and 94. Malina thinks that the 24 might point to something called astronomical decans. That's D-E-C-A-N-S. I'm not real sure about that. I'm not committed to the idea. It's just something I'm I'm aware of and, I, and I'm thinking about, but here's what he says. He, uh, this is on page 93. In Revelation 4.4, around the control throne, making a circle in the sky along the celestial horizon were 24 thrones. Okay, so you have the 24 elders surrounding the throne of God, and of course they're in thrones. So you got 24 thrones surrounding the, the central throne. On the astral thrones are 24 gold-wreathed persons clothed in garments of light called elders. The astral thrones themselves mark off 24 segments of the horizon. While the central throne of God might readily be identified with a constellation, from where do the 24 thrones derive? And what is a throne in this case? And then he quotes Ptolemy, the famous Ptolemy, who says, the planets are said to be in their own chariots or thrones and the like when they happen to have familiarity in two or more of the aforesighted ways with places in which they are found. For then their power is most increased in effectiveness by the similarity and cooperation of the kindred property of the signs which contain them. So again, he's quoting the the Ptolemaic astronomer there, Ptolemy. And he adds, in some thrones are positions of power in the sky. Now, why would there be 24? And then he quotes Diodorus of Sicily, who wrote shortly before the Christian era, shortly before the AD period, who observes relative to Babylonian astronomy this, and here's the quote from Diodorus, beyond the circle of the zodiac, they, the Babylonians, designate 24 other stars of which one half, they say, are situated in the northern parts and one half in the southern. And of these, those which are visible, they assign to the world of the living, while those which are invisible, they assign 
or they regard as being adjacent to the dead. And so they call them, quote, judges of the universe, okay, end of quote from Diodorus. So again, what, what Malin is getting at, is, I'll read you two or three more sentences here, is that there's something astronomical going on here. He says, in terms of celestial personages, these elders on their thrones of power would fit the profile of those truly significant astronomic beings of antiquity, the astral deities known as decans. The word decan, D-E-C-A-N, from the Greek deca, 10, is a creation of the Hellenistic period to designate the astral deities who dominate over every 10 degrees of the circle of the zodiac. These deities are far more ancient than the Hellenistic period since the decans derived from Egypt in pharaonic times. The deities in question often varied in number from 72 to 24, although 36 was the proper decan number given a circle of 360 degrees. And then he just, you know, goes on and on with more of that stuff. So the reason I'm quoting this to you is, again, since we have this astral kind of thing happening in Revelation 12, uh, since there are other examples of John's writing where John, again, uses things like gematria, another, he, he uses lots of symbolic language. John is famous for this. Maybe, maybe the 24 elders has something to do with that. I don't know. Again, I'm not committed to, Val- to Malin's view. Uh, I think it's interesting. It's something that um, I'm, I'm reading about because of something else I'm working on. So probably just best to leave it there uh, along with the, the previous comments. The next question is from Jason, and he is currently reading through Exodus. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a pattern where the Lord tells Moses something to tell the Israelites, and then Moses tells them something slightly different and often more restrictive than what God said. So Lord gives a simple, plain instruction. Moses then embellishes and adds onto it. Is there any theological lesson here? Jesus chastised the Pharisees for adding to God's law. Did that pattern start with Moses, or am I reading too much into it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I honestly, I don't see a problem here. I mean, God said they could take a day's portion, and Moses defines a day's portion as uh, Homer. Uh, again, since it's his stomach and the stomach of the fellow, fellow Israelites, that's, I think, just a, a judgment on his part. So I think it's pragmatic. In other words, take what you'll eat, don't waste it, and don't think about storing up excess. Uh, you need to trust God that you'll be fed tomorrow. You know, so take only what you'll eat now. And so I, I don't I don't think there's really anything to be read into the, the difference. I don't think Moses is changing the command. I think he's 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 applying it to their specific situation in terms of what they'll eat. Don't store it. You're not going to waste it. You're going to trust God that we're going to get this every day because that's the point. Okay, the next question is from Matthew in Southern California. First, he thinks he's getting a handle on the ideas behind the Babel event, but He was curious about the mindset of the people that gathered together in Shinar to build the thing. The phrase in Genesis 11, 4, let us make a name for ourselves, makes him think perhaps the goal was apothesis. Is that a reasonable assumption, or do you think it was something else, like perhaps trying to contact and or worship lesser Elohim? And if so, this being prior to God separating the nations and apportioning their overseers, who would these Elohim be? I guess the underlying question would be, were Marduk and Ishtar and the rest known and worshipped before God appointed them over the nations? Well, I don't, um, it, it's an interesting question because of, of the of the ramifications for, oh, how do I want to say this? How, how you would under understand the flood and, and, and the geography of all that. Uh, I, I think taking the first part of it, it first, the, the whole notion of, I think he, he probably meant apotheosis. I think that's the spelling, right? Uh, A-P-O-T-H-E-O-S-I-S. Um, that, that idea is sort of 
for lack of a better way to put it, uh, do it succinctly to become divine, you know, divinization, that sort of thing. So we're going to build this tower so that we can sort of join the gods and and they can make us part of their family and, and all that kind of stuff. We can become like them, become divine. Now, you know, in principle, I don't see the concepts. I don't see that concept being in contradiction to the concept of, oh, they were just building this to, to just do normal worship. Let's put it that way. They're not unrelated concepts, but I think it's a bit of a stretch to presume that those building the Tower of Babel have joining the divine in terms of, you know, becoming divine uh, in view. Um, I don't think that they would, I don't think they would have viewed building the temple complex that, that that would lead to divinization for everybody. Typically in Mesopotamia, that kind of language was reserved for kings and priests. And in Mesopotamia, king and the priest could be the same person. So I don't think it's, it's you know, broadly applied to all the workers, you know, that, that kind of thing. I think that would be a stretch. Now, Genesis 1, 26 uh, is, a, is a good example from, for Israelite thinking that does democratize divine sonship. You know, every person is is God's imager. And again, we have this family metaphor that's part of the imaging idea that I discuss in, in the unseen realm. But I don't see Genesis 11 really making that point, you know, about the, the whole, you know, the, the whole worship thing. Um, it really depends on on how you sort of view, you know, the, the, the chronology. I think certainly before the, the Babel event, you, you, you know, you're, you're going to have it, it, it's it's how does the, how does the Babel event, the Tower of Babel, and the flood event before it, how does that align with certain things that you know an archaeologist would dig up, you know, some some object of devotion or some figurine of a deity or whatever? And the answer to that really is it, it's kind of hard to know, you know, how those how those things you know fit together. The biblical the, the way the biblical story presents this is that there there is at least knowledge. Okay, of the one true God up to up up through the Babel account, and then that's where this judgment occurs. So I think the surface reading there—I shouldn't say the surface, but the face value reading there—is that this is the point at which you know you get you know other pantheons. This is the biblical rationale, the explanation that this is an act of judgment. Now you could again, depending on how you you'd think about the archaeology and the chronological questions, and even the, the question of the extent of the flood, you could presume. That well, it probably took a long time to build this thing, and the, the migrations that are described in, in Genesis, you know, eleven took a long time, and maybe people were already, you know, like sort of either a, a adopting the worship of some other, you know, entity that they, you know, believed exists because they, they're going to believe in a, again in an animate, active, supernatural world. You know, that idea that you know they're surely God must have other divine beings that work with Him. You know, you know, let's worship one of them, or you know, who who knows what what they're thinking. But you could have some sort of precursor idea so that when we get to the Babel event, that the tower becomes a manifestation of a not only just a willingness to depart from the will of Yahweh, but also a change in loyalties. Maybe they are worshiping, you know, some other deity, or at least they're that's what they're thinking in their head. That's what they're doing. They're you know, they're aligning themselves with some other force or deity that they again either you know have been exposed to or whatever. We're just not told. We're not we're not told how this chronology works. So it's possible some of this could have began before the Babel event, but the most transparent reading of it, you know, is Again, what 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 you get in the biblical text is that you know this is a again a a punitive act on the part of of uh, Yahweh because of what happens at Babel. But but the mere act of building it could suggest there's something else going on. So I think again that's that's a thought that 
that we need to have on the table and, and, and make part of what we think about when it, when it comes to this particular worldview. As going back to the, to the divinization question, I, I think, again, making for themselves a name doesn't really have divinization, you know, apotheosis in, in view. And the reason I say that is because the Shem, the word name, is the object of this verb, asa, nine times in the Old Testament. And each time the notion of achieving renown or achieving fame works really well in the context. And so I don't see this passage as an exception. I don't see Genesis 11 as being the exception to, oh, now we're not thinking about building renown for ourselves, that this is the place where we localize the deity and anyone who wants to relate to the deity has to come over here to us. And that would have made them famous. Uh, I, I think that's quite sufficient for the context as opposed to, oh, if we do this, we'll, we'll become part of the divine family. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch for Genesis 11. Okay. The next few are from Chris. And the first one is, what criteria were used to decide person's maturity or ability to read and or practice various mystical techniques? In articles such as the Old Testament response to ancient Near Eastern pagan divination practices and your myth draft, you maintain at least two key elements, mm -hmm. although these relate not so much to personal experience as they do being uh, due to binding revelation right. and prophetic apostolic authority. I guess the two is the contact is initiated by God or by yep. a member of the divine council working on his behalf. And the other is the experience includes a direct encounter with God and his divine council. Right. Is there any sanctioned method for self-initiation into the unseen realm? Or should one just accept the fact that if God wants one to be active in both realms, material and immaterial, that he will initiate the activity? If there are any sanctioned methods, what criteria would be used to determine one's readiness or maturity? Yeah, I, I don't I don't see any sanctioned uh, method of self-initiation into the divine world. Biblically we're not we're not given any of those. And even, even if you want to include something like I don't know, you know, something that the priest would use, Urim and Thummim or something like that. Well, those are still given by God. You know, in other words, you're still, you're still doing this thing to get divine knowledge according to the directions, the instructions given to you. So I, I don't see that there's any sort of self-initiated process or method that God has not first delivered or first outlined, first instructed uh, in Scripture. So that would, that would also lead to the, to the observation that there's no age uh, for self-seeking divine encounter that would be endorsed, you know, in scripture. Okay. His second one, is there any detailed source or discussion of similar depth as your Gnosticism series that you could point me to in reference to Kabbalah, whether the Jewish version or the Western hermetic version? Mm -hmm. Could you make some comments and observations about Kabbalah? Does it study or practice have any place in the life of a Christian? I have in mind your comments on the burning of the books of magic and acts and the idea that such things have no place in the life of a follower of the way. And so he just wants to know if you can comment on Kabbalah mm -hmm. and direct him towards any material like your yeah, Gnosticism. Like the Gnosticism yeah. thing. Yeah. I, I have not created anything on, on Kabbalah. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Fred Klett, K-L-E-T-T, -T, and this is not the comedian, by the way, um, who is a he has a ministry, he's had the ministry probably 20, 25 years, specifically to Jews in Philadelphia. 
sort of a, it's not a messianic church. He has sort of an evangelistic, you know, ministry to, to Jewish people uh, in Philadelphia. He actually spends a good deal of time on uh, Kabbalah. So you could, you could Google Fred, K-L-E-T-T and Kabbalah, and you'd find, you know, some lectures that he's given online. So, you know, Fred is, is sort of a resource for that. I have a number of, of my own resources, like introductions to Western esoteric thought that will naturally discuss Kabbalah, but I, it's not something I've really jumped into myself as, a, as an area of interest. Getting back to sort of the overall flavor of the question, I don't see any endorsement of seeking mystical knowledge uh, in the Bible. I don't see any biblical endorsement of that. If one means by that self-initiation or self-solicitation of non-human intelligences— Okay, I don't see that at all. I see the contrary to that. Uh, you know, a couple places in Job where even God doesn't trust his holy ones. Galatians 1 says, hey, even if an angel from heaven shows up and gives you another gospel, don't believe it. Again, I, I see the, the, the opposite thing going on in Scripture. And I think the rationale for it is because not only are the holy ones, you know, potentially uh, they, they could mislead you, but again, this isn't your turf. How are you going to know? How are you going to be able to parse, you know, this sort of thing? And so this is why scripture gives these parameters because God says, I am trustworthy. I do have your best interest in mind. You know, I love you. I'm in covenant relationship with you, all these things. And if you want to know what I'm thinking or how to contact me here, here's, here's, here you go. You know, uh, these, these are the, these are the hoops to jump through, jump through them, you know, that, that kind of thing, because it's, it's about your protection and it's about you getting information from a, a, divine source that has your best interest in mind. If you go out on your own, you know, how are you going to judge that? So, but that that's different than, I would call that a practitioner, you know, someone who wants to have mystical experiences and then they try different things. So there's a difference between seeking to be a practitioner of mysticism versus seeking to understand the outlook, the system, all that stuff, to understand what, what mysticism teaches and what it, what it is and what people do and that sort of thing. So a practitioner is trying to seek contact for enlightenment, which is a pursuit historically, and I would say inevitably, linked to either imposing the terms for divine knowledge, inserting your own terms for divine knowledge, uh, for gnosis, you know, to become enlightened, or meriting your own status in the divine presence, in the divine family. And, and again, that's very contrary to the gospel. So, and, and what I mean by that, in, in other words, to say it another way, you wouldn't, you wouldn't desire to be a practitioner if you were content to have God give you the information on his terms exclusively. Or you wouldn't be a practitioner if you didn't think you were going to get some reward out of it. Again, but but that's all different than just sort of an academic inquiry about Western esoteric systems, Western esotericism or mysticism or all that sort of thing. I mean, I read a lot of that stuff, So, uh, but I'm not a practitioner. I'm not, again, seeking you know, these encounters or anything like that. So that's the way I would, you know, I, I would approach it. Kabbalah is just a it's just Jewish. It's a it's a form of Jewish mysticism. Again, it's not it's not necessarily to people who who are practitioners. Not necessarily something overtly you know sinister or overtly occult. But again, what why do people do it? Because they want to be in control of the terms of their own divine encounter, their own encounter with the numinous. Okay, with the divine presence, and they expect to get something out of it. So I, I don't uh, I don't see how the, how that's consistent with the patterning 
that we get in Scripture about this sort of thing. So his last question is, at least certain parts of the Word, the author seemed to almost presuppose contact with disincarnate beings. One passage that comes to mind immediately is 1 John 4 and mm-hmm. testing the spirits. Mm-hmm. Since Christians and Jews seem to be prohibited from rendering the veil, so to speak, in esoteric mm-hmm. parlance, how would a Christian, especially after the apostolic era, be expected to come into contact with an Elohim? What do you think was going through John's mind as he wrote? Well, testing the spirits doesn't of necessity imply soliciting the spirits or going out for look going out looking for spirits to test. Uh, if you read through First John, the the whole notion of testing the spirits is linked to false teaching. It's very clear, very overt. So obviously, I would say First John wouldn't be legitimizing self initiation into false teaching or self initiation into some sort of episodic encounter where you could be misled. I think the point of the language is that claims about spiritual truth, uh, in, in the context of First John, it's really focused on Christology, but claims about spiritual truth that contradict apostolic teaching are presumed to come from competing spirits, competing, you know, you know, opposition, opposition in the spirit world. And so those claims need to be evaluated. They need to be judged. They need to be tested. Uh, if, you, if you look at First John 4, 6, Again, right there in the passage, it juxtaposes the spirit of truth with the spirit of error. And I I think all that illustrates Scripture's elevation of revelation over personal experience. The two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but if the source of both is the true God, then both of those things will not be contradictory. Scripture consistently moves us to judge personal experience by the revelation given by God through inspiration to the masses. In other words, this whole idealized, I'm, I'm, living, I'm, I'm doing my own thing here to, to tap into divine knowledge or have an encounter with God. It, it's quite contrary to both textual, you know, both, both explicit passages and whole, the whole patterning uh, of what's going on uh, in, in both Testaments, I would say. All right, Mike. Well, that's all the questions we have for this show. So we've got some news, I guess, we need to talk about. And I guess the first one up is the whole McLot news. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let us yeah, know. that was that was a big announcement uh, for those who, uh, you know, missed that on the blog. You basically uh, laid out the next what, 25 <laughs> years of your life. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's, that's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but... <laughs> Uh, some would say it was a what it was a bit of overkill. Uh, I don't think so. I just want it's the longest post in the history of the blog. It's the one entitled something like uh, you know obstacles and opportunities for 2016 or something like that. You, you can find it if you go up to the website. You could put Mick Lot in the search engine M I Q L A T and you'd certainly find it. Yeah, Mick Lot is is a a new nonprofit. Again, I'm not going to give you the history of how this happened. It's been a three-year process. Basically, two years of me trying to discourage the person who suggested it. At least let the listeners know who don't know what McLot means. Yeah, McLot means haven or refuge. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a term and a concept that appears in my second novel, uh, The Portent, which is the sequel to The Facade. And, and so for, for Portent readers, they're going to they're going to have an immediate sense of what I'm trying to do with this. And that is, I just had someone in the audience three years ago initiate the idea. Like I said, I put him off for two years of telling me, hey, you should have a nonprofit that, you know, maybe someday will will allow you, you know, more time to just devote to the things that you, you do online now, uh, but put more time into them. And so, again, after assuming that he would go away, <laughs> if I didn't show much interest, he didn't go away and I finally relented. And uh, the result of that, uh, a year later, uh, is we have an official 501c3 
IRS approved nonprofit. And you can go up to the to the to the post and read about okay, what are we doing next? You've got to come up with a web page. We got to come up with a way to, you know to to take uh, donations because if 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 people care about uh, the the thought of Mike devoting 10, 15, 20, 40 hours a week, you know, in, into what he does, you know, producing two or three books a year, producing lots of videos, you know, producing, you know, doing more on the podcast, having other podcasts. I mean, there there's some things that are already in process, and I'm trying to manage the time I have, which is extraordinarily limited now. And you can you can learn why that is uh, if you go read the post. But if there's an interest in really exponentially increasing the amount of content that I can produce, then that is what Miklod is for. And, and, and it's also for networking people who are like you, like, like those of you listening to this podcast. I mentioned earlier the five or six people in every church that just are starved for content. You ought to know who you are. And McLot is 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 a way that that I would want to network people who care about content and people who have taken it upon themselves to start their own ministries to to just basically again if you've it helps if you've read the portent but in, in the portent that the whole group is there's this little group and basically their decision was look we're not going to wait for permission to do the things we we believe God wants us to do we're just going to do them. We're not going to take it through a denomination. We're not going to take it through a church. We're just going to do the things we're allowed to do. They're not anti-church, but they're they're not letting that dictate the terms of how they serve God and 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 the content that they get to to feed themselves and others. They're just doing it. And so people who who are doing that in some way, like the the uh, the Fern and Audrey episode, you know, some of the other people we've had interviews with, a lot of people on the on the blog, on the comments, you know, that, that'll, will surface. There are people just out there doing things and they, they care about getting content and meeting other people and, and accomplishing ministry tasks on their own. Well, you all ought to know who you all are. And so McLeod is part of trying to build a network for you and for me, uh, for, for the institution, for the organization that can get things done uh, in a more timely way in regard to all that. Yeah, and I know you don't like the word ministry and or church, but and, and McLeod is certainly not that, but it is a way, or it does kind of represent that for some people in a sense. So if yeah, you I really don't, I don't use have your... much control over that, I've come, <laughs> that's another another conclusion I've come to is kicking and screaming. Right, and for those of us who really use your material for furthering our Bible education, yeah, uh, it is a church to some and a ministry to most, and and so that's kind of what McLeod is is the is a, a formal infrastructure for uh, you and others to present content and do it formally. I'm going to encourage everybody to you can already support this endeavor by donating to the Naked Bible Podcast. You can go to Patreon. We have PayPal. You'll notice if you donate via PayPal, it'll say McLeod on it. So your donations already are supporting. Yeah, and, and any any donation. After the first of the year, you're going to get that. That's going to be tax deductible. Now we can extend that to you. So, you know, it. it one of the reasons I put it off was this whole church question. I, I'm not going to be a church. I don't want to. I don't want to displace or replace the local church. But you know, the fact of the matter is, people are ignoring me. <laughs> You know, when it comes to that, they're, they're going to use the content for whatever they're going to use it for. And I'm going to quit worrying about it. So I just, it, it's a, it's a thing that exists that people can support that will gradually incrementally uh, help me to shed, you know, some of the things I do like o- online, like with teaching and that sort of thing, just, just shed some of the things that are taking my time 
so that I can devote more time to producing more content for you. And that's, that's the logic of it. And then networking us all together in some way. And again, Trey and, and the person who started this, his name is Greg and, and others, my webmaster, Joe, we're, we're all sort of at the stage now where we're putting our heads together and asking, well, how, how do we do that? You know, what, what makes sense to do? Uh, how do we accomplish some of these goals? And you're hearing about it right now and it, it's in its infancy. So you're in on the ground floor and we hope that, you know, you'll support uh, the endeavor in the best way you can. Yeah. And this is a way to be directly active to the cause. And there will be some things coming up, website and things of that nature. But if you want to be involved, you can actively be involved and participate in this yep. nonprofit right now by donating. Absolutely. And hopefully over the next months and year, we will grow, grow, grow. And it's exciting to get this type of content out to more people. And maybe we'll have more things to talk about. About, about the nonprofit, but now's the time to help us get there and do that. Yep. And we'd appreciate, and everybody who has in the past so far, get it to this point. We appreciate that. And, and Mike, you also have something else to talk about, which is uh, you've got three new books out. Mm-hmm. 60 seconds. Tell me about that. Yeah, the 60 second scholar. So number 60 and then the word second, as in 60 seconds is a minute. Three books. So, they so are... it's really a 180 second series, <laughs> is what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. It's a three-minute series, yeah. Uh, Each book, uh, there are three of them, is divided up into 100 readings. Each reading is anywhere from 400 to 600 words. So, you know, you could get it, you know, some some people can read that in a minute. Uh, That's where the name comes from. But the first one is sort of 100 pieces of advice about Bible study. And, And I'm not teaching a method. I'm not giving you a checklist that you can check off the points and, oh, I understand this passage now. It's not that. Uh, there, there are, I do talk about tools. I, I talk about do's and don'ts. Uh, sometimes it's, it, it's pretty blunt, you know, about, you know, what I, what I think would help you think better about Bible study. Uh, sometimes it's just observations, you know, for, for instance, that, this entry just popped into my head for some reason, but one, end, one, one day is, is titled a lay person who thinks clearly is better than a pastor who doesn't. Okay. And that's just a truism. You know what? It's it's not again to denigrate pastor, but it's designed to say that look, you know, even some people in pastoral ministry are are not going to be as as clear headed as as other people you'll run into, and and maybe even you. And that that's not a bad thing. God gave you a, a you know a, a good mind, so use it. You know, use it in Bible study. Because for me, if I could boil it down, Bible study to me is about thinking well. It's about gathering information, gathering data, and then knowing how to think well about it. And that takes time. So the first book is advice. The second book is, hey, here's a hundred things that if you knew these things, if you really had these under your belt about the Bible, you'd get more out of reading it. You'd you'd read it more intelligently. And then the third one is a hundred observations about doctrine. Again, if you had these hundred observations sort of in the can, uh, as you read through scripture, as you studied scripture, you would, they would just help you. They would just help you be a, a more careful and discerning thinker. Uh, about the Bible. So those three are available on Amazon uh, in print, paperback. The Kindle version is coming. Hopefully by the time the next episode, I can say that there's a Kindle version. We're working on that, but we'll see. Do you have any update on the uh, Unseen Realm study guide? The one, uh, yeah, the boy, the one by Doug Van Dorn, I got an email this week. That is going to be available in March. And I'm going to actually be in Colorado with Doug Van Dorn in February 18th and 19th. And they may be able to get early editions of that to that event. I, I'm not sure, so don't don't quote me on that. The study guide for Supernatural that Ron Johnson wrote 
is available in uh, in something called Verso right now, which is, boy, since I don't have a smartphone, I don't know that I can intelligently comment on this, but we have our own reader app. Okay, Lexum has their own reader app, and you can get that leader's guide in that form right now. Uh, but that that will be coming out in, in Logos versions. And I'm not sure what to say yet about print. I've heard February uh, and, and March for that one too, but that one's a little more nebulous than, than the other. But if you had Verso, you could get it now. And you mentioned an event in March. Can you give us some event updates? Yeah, there's actually one coming up in Florida at the end of this month, the end of January. So in, uh, I'm going to be at Sarasota Christian Church on the 30th. People who want to get the details, you can go to my website, drmsh.com slash events, or if you just hover on the About tab, you'll see Speaking Schedule. But I'm going to be in Florida, Sarasota, on the 30th of January. February, I'm going to be in in Boulder, Colorado, February 18th and 19th. And then in March, I'm going to be in Hazel Park, Michigan, uh, the 5th and the 6th. And again, for the locations and more details, you can go up to the uh, the website, drmsh.com slash events, or get it off the About tab for more information. Anything else you'd like to mention? Oh, I don't I don't think so. That's, that's actually a lot of stuff. Nothing else pops into my head, though. All right. And next week, we're back into Leviticus. Yep. Yep. Three chapters. And then the, the final episode of Leviticus will hit the last two, I believe. So two more sessions with Leviticus and... Maybe next week we can uh, talk about what's after Leviticus. All right. Sounds good, Michael. We appreciate you answering our questions. And with that, I just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.